Hey, everybody. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. You can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial if you go to audibletrial.com slash design recharge. I'm currently reading The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks right now, and about two hours left. It's a killer book. I probably have been getting through about five to seven hours of listening a week this summer. Maybe more, maybe less. Anyway, check it out. Audibletrial.com slash design recharge. Another way to support the channel and the podcast is to get extra content like the video I added last week with Sean Ferguson, his part two, delivered to patrons only at patreon.com slash Diane Gibbs. My favorite way to build websites is with the Elementor plugin that works with almost any WordPress theme. It makes any theme invincible. This plugin has revolutionized the way I'm able to design websites and is easier for my customers, my clients, as I'm training them, really drag and drop and change at that point. So it's awesome. You should check it out. There's a free version. And then if you like that, you can always um, do use this affiliate link to purchase the right plan for you. And you can go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash capital D, capital R, Elementor. Everything else is lowercase. Today, we have Mandy Horton, who's going to be talking to us about Design History 3. So today is the last day of Design History Week here on Design Recharge, and I'm excited to have you guys along. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've learned something, and you can always, I don't know what, you can just listen. So here we go. You probably want to watch this one. If you don't, if you're listening, you probably don't, I don't know if you know there's a YouTube channel that has all these. This episode, for these three episodes, you should probably listen. I mean, not listen. You should probably watch these because there's lots of visuals. Really hard to listen to. Anyway, I probably should have said that in the beginning. I mean, the beginning of the week. Maybe. Boop. Hey, this week is design history week on design recharge if you're listening on your podcast player you probably want to head on over to youtube to the design recharge channel and watch these because these are going to have a ton of visuals this is a different kind of way we're doing it this week we're kind of getting lectures from um art history professor that's teaching us all about design history so i hope if you want to, you'll join us over on YouTube. If not, just listen and kind of be confused, I guess. So enjoy either way. Hit like, subscribe, and give me a comment. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Design Recharge. This is the end of the Design History Week, and I'm so thankful that my friend Mandy decided it was going to be okay to do this together three days in a row and what a trooper thank goodness it wasn't during school right we really couldn't have done it that way no no way <laughs> but i'm so glad because i really think it's been fun and 
enlightening for a lot of people, especially people who didn't have design history. So I do have a poll. This is design history three. This is again, whole semester. It's 1945 to present day. So yeah, Mandy teaches at the University of Central Oklahoma and she's a designer. She still does design and design clients, but now she's really focused on design history. And I'll give you some ways to get in touch with Mandy if you want to take, there's two classes that you can take online from University of Central Oklahoma, which is uco.edu if you're just wondering. But without further ado, and brought to you by our patrons. All right, we can begin now that Catherine's here. Okay. Oh, good. Yes, we all can. you. Okay, so um, we are going to be talking about Design History 3 today, and I want to remind everyone, especially for those of you who haven't been with us all three days, um, as I go through history, uh, Design History 3, it's going to be um, from 1945 to present day, like Diane said, but it's not going to be done um, in, you know, in a timeline fashion, in a linear fashion in that sense. It's going to be going through more ideas. Um, so, and I tried really hard, I was telling Diane this before we got started, tried really hard to actually compress it today so that it would fit within an hour, and I really don't think I was successful. So bear with me on this again. It's just really, really hard to give the Cliff Notes version of the history of graphic design in an hour. Um, but I do appreciate all of you being here. Yes. One thing I just want to remind people, if you have questions, feel free to put them in the chat and I will ask them. So this is the beauty of this type of stuff that you guys get to come live. Just put the questions in. And if you're watching this on YouTube or you're listening, you can always email Aunt Mandy at a Horton, H-O-R-T-O-N, four, the, the number four, not F-O-R, just the number four, no, one, two, three, four, at uco.edu, A Horton, four, at uco, uco.edu. Yes. Okay, the end. Okay, keep going. Okay, back to you. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and we'll get started then. Um, there we go. So we're starting with History of Graphic Design 3. And this era um, in the History of Graphic Design courses starts with basically the end of World War II. And one of the big, the interesting things about this is um, thanks to the end of World War II, there's really a, a rise in production and consumerism. It's similar in nature to what we saw at the beginning of History of Graphic Design 2, where we were talking about the Industrial Revolution. So with this rise in production and consumerism in America, there's also this rise in interest in, um, you know, all things that graphic designers do. So um, the idea of um, branding and corporate identity, um, logo design, all of those things. And then also, of course, advertising. We have all of these products that are competing um, with, you know, one another for attention on the shelves. And so they, there's really going to be this interest in, in advertising during this era as well. <clears throat> so um, I do want to start by talking about some of the modernist typography. I should have found an updated version of this image. This is an old, old image of universe. Um, this actually used to be from a slideshow. It was converted um, to a digital image for me. Um, but this, so Universe is a typeface that was designed by Adrian Frutiger, and it's um, very similar to Futura, which we talked about last time, um, was intended to be like an embodiment of uh, modernist typography, modernist values, and so much so that Adrian Frutiger came up with this new idea. Instead of um, 
you know, naming universe as um, expanded, condensed, and italics, he created this grid system and a numbering system um, to identify all the different variants of universe. So that was an interesting idea. And it certainly has been applied by other people, you know, other typeface designs, but it hasn't really caught on widely. Like this is not just like the accepted mode anymore. Um, which might be a little bit of a shame. I really like this idea. And then, of course, we can't really talk about modernist typography without talking about the ubiquitous Helvetica, um, which was originally named, um, I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly, Neuhaus Grotesque, um, designed by Max Medinger and Edward Hoffman in 1957. And, of course, um, I, I mentioned yesterday when we were talking about Times New Roman that Helvetica and Times New Roman um, basically compete with each other for the number one most used typeface in the world. Um, still both widely used today, although Helvetica certainly has had um, various upgrades and um, various digital versions made of it. Um, and it is, as one of the most two most used typeface in the world, some people love it, some people hate it, and of course people love to hate it. Um, and there is a documentary on Helvetica if you would like to learn more, and I do highly recommend it. It is a very entertaining and informative documentary just called Helvetica. Um, so in terms of modernist typography, the international typographic style was a big style um, that really took all of the ideas of some of those avant-garde uh, movements that we talked about last time. Um, de Stiel and constructivism and ideas from the Bauhaus and they compiled them into this uh, new sort of movement you know that, that applied the grid and applied white space and asymmetric designs and the use of sans serif typography. So this became the next prevalent modernist design movement um, and it was it's considered to be founded by two individuals Max Bill and Theo Balmer who I have examples from both of these gentlemen and um, they were educated at the Bauhaus and then founded the Ulm School of Design, which was sort of a follow-up to the Bauhaus um, and had a lot of the same ideology there. Um, let's see, other names that are associated with the international typographic style, Armin Hoffman, um, his image Dagut form. I'm sorry, I didn't realize this one was so pixelated when I pulled it. Um, but again, so they really explore again, asymmetrical design, and they, they are starting to get pretty experimental with the typographic form itself, as you can see here. I really love how Armin Hoffman has taken um, this, the shapes um, and repeated those shapes over and over again and just broken them up to relate the, the, the good form or the good form text. Um, and then one name that is probably really, really well known from the ITS style, even if you haven't heard of the others, you've probably heard of Joseph Mueller Brockman. And his probably most iconic piece is this one from the Zurich Town Hall um, from 1955. Um, and one of the things I really appreciate about um, Mueller Brockman's stuff is while it does fit into the ITS ideology, it tends to feel more playful than some of the stuff, you know, less corporate centric and a little bit more fun. He uses dynamic use of scale and his, um, his work is really, um, it's just fun. It doesn't feel so stodgy and corporate. But it wasn't 
really meant to be fun at the time, right? It was really. Oh, no. Yeah. No. And, and, the, and, and the thing about it is it's like when you're looking at ITS and you're looking at examples of ITS next to each other, if you're, when you're looking at Max Bill and Theo Ballmer and Armin Hoffman, and then you see Joseph Mueller Brockman, you're like, hey, this guy was having fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it For might just sure. be in that context. But when you look at him, maybe against like postmodernism and deconstructivism, uh, maybe it wasn't having that much fun. But I think it, it really pushed the boundaries for what design was like at, at the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so modernism makes its way to America um, pretty slowly. Um, they, they, Americans were much more stuck in this rut of what they had. Um, but a lot of um, people immigrated to America from the Bauhaus and from various places all over Europe um, who had these modernist ideals. So when they immigrated to America during um, World War II and sometimes a little after, um, they brought their modernist values with them. And one example is Herbert Matter. So he's one of the individuals who's credited with this idea of bringing modernism to America. And um, this is an example of a poster that he did in Switzerland while he was still living and working there. And one of the neat things about Herbert Matter was not only was he a graphic designer, but he was also a talented photographer. And he took um, pretty much all of his own photographs for all of his designs. And when he first immigrated to America, oh, oh I'll come back to that idea, sorry. Um, he, so in America, he um, started working for various companies, Knoll. He worked for the Eameses, um, and he did a lot of groundbreaking um, advertising work. Um, one of my very, very favorites is this one from Noel. And again, he shot his own photographs for this. Um, he, he worked for Noel for a really long time. He often incorporated his kids into um, the photograph, you know, photography that he did for Noel Furniture. So um, when he first, when Matter first immigrated to America, he um, didn't speak English and he was struggling to find work. Um, but thankfully, there were other um, immigrants to America, and Alexei Brodovich in particular was willing to work with Herbert Matter. Um, so he, Alexei Brodovich was an art director at um, Harper's Bazaar, and um, he hired Herbert Matter to take photography. So while he was, while Herbert Matter was having trouble as a designer getting work, he was able to get work as a photographer, and that helped him to break back into the industry when he got, when he came to America. So the, Kath, Catherine asked if the uh, the um, the Swatch guy, right? The how Swatch stole some of his designs. I think it was the to, Joseph Mueller Brockman. No, it was this guy, right? Not Alexi, but the uh, Matter Herbert Matter. Oh, oh. Um. So I'm sorry. So I think you're thinking of the Swatch ad that yes. Paula Shear did in the '80s. Yes. Um, you know, I don't remember if I worked that into this lecture or not, but I do talk about that ad and I ask my students about whether or not they feel like it's an homage or if they feel like it's plagiarism. And it's always interesting how, um, you know, one year people are like, well, it's clearly an homage. And then the next year people are like, oh my gosh, this is such plagiarism. Um, and that, that's one thing I actually use in my lectures to, you know, create a, a catalyst for a debate on plagiarism versus homage and copyrights and all of that discussion. So I'm glad she brought that up. Way to go, I Catherine. I, I don't think I have it in this lecture, though. 
Um, so Alexi Brodovich, art director for Harper's Bazaar, often employed other immigrants and helped get them started in America, which is really, really nice. Some other, so while there were a lot of immigrants who were bringing modernism with them to America, there were some um, American designers who were practicing modernism as well. And Lester Beale is a great example of an American designer who was practicing modernist techniques. Um, he did a series um, for the Rural Electrification Administration, a series of poster, uh, series of posters that were advertising and promoting um, electricity in rural areas. And these were some really nice posters. Um, also, Lester Beale was the first graphic designer to be gain or to be given a solo exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, which is quite interesting. Wow. Yeah. Um, another one of my favorites, Bradbury Thompson. He was doing this sort of playful mix of, you know, these very modernist and playful designs, but he also used a lot of traditional elements in his designs. He um, did the series West Baco Inspirations uh, for a company that he worked for. And one of the things about Bradbury Thompson was um, when he was working for West Baco, they had a very small budget. So he would have to use a lot of stock images and free images, but he was able to work around that. And they actually gave him pretty much free reign on these designs. So despite having this minimal budget, he was able to really achieve some nice things. And if you're not familiar with Bradbury Thompson's work, I, I highly recommend you check it out. Um, Alvin Lustig is another example of a designer who was um, practicing uh, modernism in the United States. And he was very, very prolific, though he had a very short career. He died young. I believe it was due to diabetes. Um, I believe he was a diabetic. But he worked for a very long time for a, um, a, a book publisher, I want to call it New Horizons. Um, and so he was very prolific, especially in the book cover design. Um, and he created these designs that were really simple and really elegant. Um, this design for Streetcar Named Desire is one of my favorites. Did he sign his work? Yeah, and you know what's interesting? I'm glad you actually mentioned that. A lot of these designers that we're talking about did sign their work. Paul Rand always signed his work. Um, Lustig signed his work. And, you know, even if we look at some of the older ones, like from last time, um, you know, Peter Barron signed his work. I don't think we actually talked about him. But all of these designers that we talk about, they actually signed their work. And that's sort of a new convention that we don't sign our work. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, when you're working for an advertising company or a graphic design firm, it's harder to sign your name to a product that's maybe a group effort um, or it's or, or something that's created under the guise of this umbrella of the company you work for. But a lot of these big designers from history, they sign their work. And so that's really raised a lot of questions about authorship and whether or not you should sign your work. Yeah. Um, let's see, also modernists in America, and again, we're not really, we're, we're kind of jumping through time here. Um, Vignelli is a big name in modernism in the United States, um, and he stuck to a grid. He had this really tight grid system that he used and employed on everything, um, and he worked for, he did a design for the National Park Service for their brochures, and this was a huge project in that 
um, he wasn't necessarily designing every brochure for all the national parks, but he was creating a template mm -hmm. for them to use. And he had to create something that was easy enough for them to all follow along across the country. And it's been considered a very successful system and they still use this. And he, of course, oh, I'm sorry. It's uh, Helvetica, right? Yes, yes. Um, he's been known to use, I think, only five typefaces. And he's like, if it's not in those five typefaces, you don't need it. Helvetica is, of course, one of them. He also did a lot of work for Knoll Advertising and American Airlines. Um, he uh, notably did redesign the New York subway signage. Um, so he's known for quite a bit of things. Um, I also want to bring up... Um, Elaine Lustig Cohen, I, this is a little out of order, actually, it was supposed to be right behind um, Alvin Lustig. Um, so she was the wife of Alvin, Alvin Lustig. And um, after he died, she actually continued on with his studio practice. Um, and she made a big name for herself as well. And, and again, you know, we don't, in the history of graphic design, we don't get to talk about women very often. So I really like to work them in wherever I can. Um, she had a really great sensibility. She actually helped him with a lot of his work before he died. He went blind um, before he died. And so she continued doing a lot of his work for him. And then she carried on his business after his death. I don't get this. You don't, don't get this piece? I don't get it. I don't get all the numbers. And Seagram's is like the alcohol company, right? Yeah. I, um, from what I understand, this is a um, like an annual report for Seagram's. Hmm. Okay. It's just the cover. Anyway, I, I wanted to throw something of hers in there. Um, okay. So the, another idea, Ooh, what happened? I don't know. My computer is like updating. Left and, and it, your computer crashed. There we go. There we go. Um, things are updating and they, they think they take priority. Okay. <laughs> so good design is good business. That becomes a, um, a terminology that enters this era as well. And be, because of this idea, good design is good business. Um, people start really paying big money for, for logo design and for corporate identity design. And Paul Rand is certainly a big name when it comes to um, logo design and corporate identity. Uh, this is his iconic UPS logo from 1961. He was known for using a lot of symbolism and conceptual approaches to his design, but also being very playful, um, which I appreciate. And, and I really love this example of the UPS logo. It of course has since been updated. Um, the more current version was updated in 2003. And I've got to be honest, I don't love it. I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's not pretty, but I really love the conceptual approach uh, and the idea behind UPS. I, I get that it's no longer relevant because they've expanded their business and changed their business model. But I also don't like the gradient. I don't know. It's just me. I don't love it either. Okay. Okay. So Dave from Scotland, I think it's Scotland, right? Um, in the UK, whatever. He um, likes the original better. He thinks too. Good. I do too. Okay, so um, big corporations are really jumping on this bandwagon. So there's a lot of companies, too, that are associated with really good design of this era. And the Olivetti Company was an example of this, where they did outstanding um, designs, not only for, you know, their graphic design, their, their identity and their advertising, but they also were known for outstanding design in their products and in their showrooms. Um, Giovanni Pintori was the art director at Olivetti, and he designed this poster for them. 
1953. What are those um, things? I've always read this as sort of an office space and like the rooms and oh. all of the rooms that you need to fill with the, um, the letter uh, 22 um, business machine. I think was a, it was oh, a typewriter. Nice. Okay. I get it now. Now see, I was like, are those some sort of machines? Like they made like some sort of press? No, no, no. I get the typewriter. Um, I mean, but I'm seeing it as like from the side view. You know what I mean? But I see what yeah. it's much better your way. Okay. Well, and I don't know that that's correct. I just, that's how I've read it. Um, again, other big names in corporate identity design, Chermayef and Geismeyer, they updated the mobile oil logo, made it much more <clears throat> modern and simplistic. Um, and then I just want to jump back to Paul Rands. He was known for designing the, um, the corporate identity for IBM and a lot of their promotions and products there. <clears throat> and the iconic IBM Rebus poster from 1981 was one of his designs. Um, again, you know, some of these companies are known for, and IBM is still known today for their outstanding design. And they, they do put a lot of energy and, um, you know, value in design, which is always nice to hear um, as a designer. And they have Macs. Mm-hmm. Just so you know. I, this is my favorite. <laughs> so now we're going to jump into the idea of design for film. And Saul Bass is often credited with revolutionizing film posters and movie titles. Um, prior to Saul Bass, really and truly, they would have one designer who would create the titles, if you want to call it that, because the titles were usually pretty static and, you know, nothing was really, ha there wasn't really a, a lot of design happening there. Um, it was much more technical than anything else. And then they would have another designer that would come in and paint or create the, <coughs> excuse me, the, the film posters. And, you know, there was the whole floating head thing where they would put all the, the heads of the big stars and then the title. And there, again, there just wasn't really a whole lot of design and conceptual approach to this. And then Saul Bass comes along and he works with some of the leading um, film directors and he starts designing posters that are a lot more conceptual that convey, you know, the meanings and agendas behind the film. But then he also starts working with them to develop the titles. And that's not true in every single case. Um, but he definitely created some very memorable titles. If you've ever had a chance to watch The Man with the Golden Arm, um, the title sequence is quite nice, how it builds up. And he signed it, too. Yes, yes. Um, other designers with films, Robert Brownjohn, he was, um, I believe he was with Chermayoff and Geismar in the United States. He, he was from the UK. He was from London. He immigrated to America. Well, I think he came to America um, to study and he made friends with, I believe it was Chermoff and Geismar. And uh, then he left and went back to the, the UK, went back to London. And it was when he returned to London, um, he had his own business there and he was approached to design the titles for From Russia with Love. And similar to Saul Bass, he was much more experimental in these title designs. So he actually had this idea to project the titles onto a dancer. Hmm. So Victor had a question uh, about the one before, like floating head posters. Are you, I know, I 
think I know what you're talking about, but he's saying like how today's posters are more just focused on. I would say that today's posters have gone back to this sort of floating head uh, mentality. Um, and, and I've been doing a lot of research on this recently. And there's, it's, it's where you see cycles in all kinds of mm -hmm. design history. And so like in the early days of film, there was, well, I would say maybe actually the earliest days of film, you've got some pretty nice um, posters that conveyed the more of the idea and the aesthetic of the film. And then they went to the floating heads where like if it, you saw Wizard of Oz, um, poster, it would be Judy Garland's head and the Tin Man's head and then the word, the Wizard of Oz. Um, but you're seeing that again. And, you know, if you see an Avengers poster, it has just the heads or, you know, the figures of the people, but it doesn't really convey a scene or a moment of the film, um, which is, it's just interesting how things like that cycle. Mm -hmm. I hope that answered the question. Yes. I think. Okay. Let's see. Design for film still. Okay. Um, and then we get really into the modern film. And I think Kyle Cooper is a good example of someone who pushed this mm -hmm. idea a bit further. And he was really inspired by, um, I can't remember his name, but the, the gentleman who designed the titles for To Kill a Mockingbird, which is another great film title sequence if you haven't seen it. Um, and so what he did is he really tried to incorporate the storyline into the titles. Mm -hmm. So you really feel like, especially films like Seven that he designed the titles for, you really feel like you're missing out if you aren't watching the titles. Like you're, you've missed a part of the story, which is really interesting because how many times have you fast forwarded through either television titles or movie titles because they're just so boring. They don't really have any relevance. Let's just get through them. Let's get this started. But when you're really successful at title sequence design, like Kyle Cooper, um, people do, they feel like they've missed a part of the story if they've fast forwarded through that. So true. Very powerful. Uh, it's a powerful tool, right? Yes, it is a powerful tool. And, and wait, uh, uh, Kent says, Stephen Frankfurt. I don't yes, know. What mean. That's exactly it. I was thinking okay. Frank Frankfurt and I was like, Frank Frankfurt is not correct. Stephen Frankfurt is correct. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> okay, so another example of someone doing really fun, innovative stuff with um, title sequences, Digital Kitchen. They did the title sequences for Six Feet Under and True Blood and Dexter. And again, these are one, these, and, and, and so they did a lot for television shows. And so they, these are reoccurring title sequences. So you, it's not quite like seven where you, you feel like you're missing a part of the story without watching, but they are so part of the creating, like the setting the scene and the mood for watching the show that you, you do tend to watch them over and over again and not uh, fast forward through them. They're quite nice. Um, when we talk about modern graphic design, I feel like we really have to talk about Olympic identities. And um, there were some really interesting things happen with, with Olympic identities in this era. Um, so the Tokyo Games from 1964, they really embraced modernism and modern ideology for these games. So they were very minimalist, very much fitting with like the ITS movement. Um, strong grid, sans serif typography, little or no decoration. Uh, so they embraced those modernist ideals. It's funny because, you know, they have the, usually the rings are the 
five colors that are all in, in every single flag has at least one of those colors. And it's funny. So they use brown because brown's kind of like mixing all those colors. And well, and this isn't actually, I think not a really good representation because I think it was more of like a gold or a bronze oh. originally, but you know, unfortunately finding the exact color likeness is not always easy. Brown's funny too. Yeah. It was bronze, um, Jason said. Bronze, thank you, thank you. Um, so Lance Wyman was a um, U.S. citizen who traveled to Mexico um, in order to, to try to submit an idea for the Mexico Olympics. And there's some really great podcasts out there about the Mexico Olympics and the identity, like 99% Invisible did a series uh, or a show, I'm sorry, on um, the Mexico Olympics. So they talk about this design and they also talk about just the, you know, everything surrounding those Olympic Games. Listen to that if you have a chance. Um, but Lance Wyman was, um, he was inspired by the op art movement, but he was also, he traveled to Mexico. He um, visited some historic sites, some historic, you know, Aztec sites and got inspiration from the local culture and tried to apply that to his designs as well, which I think really translates to his pictograms a little bit more than, than the identity itself. These were bright and colorful, um, which is, it's very different from what we associate with most um, Olympic games. Mm -hmm. Anne says he's also a super nice guy. Well, I would love to meet him someday. That would be awesome. Uh, Taylor said she heard him speak at the brand new conference about six years ago. He said he's so, cool. so, so cool. Oh, man, Jason, you're the best. Jason found that 99% invisible. I'm copying that sucker. Okay, keep Thank going. Thank you, Jason. Okay, so next we're going to jump into the Munich Olympic Games um, by Otto Aker, I think is how you say his name. Um, <clears throat> so these games, now this is an interesting story because Aker had been, you know, asked to submit a design for the logo and his original design uh, wasn't accepted. And, um, and then he spent a lot of time working on the pictograms. The pictograms were created on a grid. They were very structured. And like he, in his book, he talks about how um, he really thought about actual human movement. So even though he was using this grid and the structure to create these pictograms, um, he wanted to make sure that like the movement of the arms and the legs was realistic. Um, so he really paid attention to that and created this really, really structured figure that we we see everywhere today. This has been borrowed. The same principle has been borrowed for like the restroom signs and uh, so you see various versions of this everywhere. Um, and then they continued looking for a, a, an appropriate logo and they came back to him again and asked him once again to try again. And um, his second attempt was the one that was accepted for the 1972 Munich Games. So we use this a lot in America in our signage on roads or things like that. Dave, I'd love to know if they're using that I think you're the only one that's in the UK today. Um, do you use that over there? Do you use these signs like this? You can tell us in the chat. Okay, keep going. Okay, so um, our next thing that we're gonna talk about is, is the age of advertising. So if you've ever seen the show Mad Men, that's sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's a fictional story, but it's, it's based on the idea of the Mad Men um, or the, that name came from Madison Avenue. So Madison Avenue in New York, a lot of the big name advertising agencies were located on or around Madison Avenue. 
Um, so that's where the term Mad Men came from. So Naomi had a question and I answered it, but I don't know if mine answers right. It said, did he, the guy who pictogram guy, did he design these before our signage took this on as a common look? Um, it is my understanding that he did. And it is also my understanding that he, so he designed these um, pictograms for the 1972 grant games and Almost every, I think every Olympic Games, they design their own, each designs their own logo and their own pictograms. I think the only exception is I, that Acres pictograms were used not only for the Munich Games, but I think they were used for the Calgary Games as well, um, or, or Toronto, and another game that was in um, Canada, I believe. Um, so this is, I think, the only set of pictograms that were used twice. But since then, everyone creates their own set. Okay, so um, George Lois is um, one of the iconic uh, examples of one of the big ad men from the night. And if you've ever had heard him speak, he is very, very interesting to hear speak. Um, he's very riveting. He's a great storyteller. Um, he was associated with some of the great um, advertising campaigns, um, I Want My MTV, um, and he also did, uh, before he got into that, he was doing these Esquire covers, and the um, he covered uh, the Nixon and Kennedy television debates, and that's what this is in reference to, this Esquire cover, uh, when Nixon was first on television against Kennedy in these debates. These were some of the first, I think they were the first televised presidential debates. Um, Nixon looked really, really bad. Um, there, were, there was commentary that he looked like he was dead. Um, so this is commentary on that. And basically he decided, they decided to reshoot the debate or redo a televised debate. And Nixon had one more chance to try to look good against Kennedy. So um, he's part of that ad, it's a documentary called Ad and Copy. He's in that a oh, lot. Yes. Yes, I and it's Thank you. it is really good, and he really. Um, so, if you're into business, he really helped Tommy Hilfiger come. He's to asked him, "How do you want to? What do you want to be like?" And he's like, "Oh, I want to be like Ralph Lauren or something like that." And so he's like, "Okay," but he was thinking it would take time, you know, to get to that point. And he was, he said, um, he, Tommy Hill. Tommy was very uncomfortable with how quickly what, what he was doing, but man, it so worked. So he really understood business. He understood how to market and he understood just even that, you know, that he wanted to take a picture of how Nixon, you know, was baking it up, I guess. Yeah. Um, another iconic advertising campaign is the Doyle Dane Burnback. um, Volkswagen Think Small and Lemon campaign. And this was interesting because this was, um, they took something that was not selling well in the United States. Like people did not want these European looking cars that were very small and awkward. Um, and they really played up on that idea that this is a small car and that's okay. Embrace it. And yeah, it's awkward. Um, but so they really embraced it and it, really turned sales around for Volkswagen. So this was a very successful campaign. Cause this, where's Volkswagen? Isn't it in Germany? They were from Germany and um, uh, Hitler was associated with the design of these cars. Yeah. So there was some, um, yeah, controversy. So they were having to kind of get out of some of that still probably. Yes. 
Yes. So we're going to jump ahead to psychedelic poster design. <laughs> I know, big jump here. Advertising, psychedelic posters. Uh, some of my favorite designers are from this period. Victor Moscoso is really interesting because he was very traditionally trained. He was trained, um, I believe, at Yale under Joseph Albers, who was from the Bauhaus. So he knew and understood um, color theory. He had a really great understanding of that. And basically, he took everything he learned at Yale and kind of turned it on its head. And that's how he made a name for himself. So, you know, he, he had been told to avoid vibrating colors because they irritate the eye. And he was like, let's just irritate their eyes. Let's get their attention. Attention-grabbing designs. And the goal, instead of you know, traditionally with a modernist approach, the goal was to create a design that people could read really quickly as they were passing by it on the street. And the ideology changes here. And the ideology becomes, don't try to allow them to read it quickly or try to stop them and make them look at it. And so that was what was really working with the psychedelic era posters is people were, were stopping to try to figure out what the text said. It was that interesting that they wanted to look at it. And this was all hand-drawn type, probably. Yes. Yes. Um, and I mentioned this one yesterday, so I wanted to go ahead and make sure I, I included it today. Um, the Jim Question, Question Jug Band, excuse me, uh, by Alton Kelly and Stanley Mouse. So these were two designers who worked together and they were very prolific during the um, psychedelic era. And they often employed and borrowed images from the past. So this is a great example of an image from Art Nouveau. So they um, borrowed, uh, um, Mukas, excuse me, image from this cigarette paper ad and employed it for their concert poster. Had it been 75 years? I don't believe so. Um, I think this is one of those interesting things of, you know, there's this ideology of if you change it enough, mm. you can get away with it. But did they really change it enough? Um, I think that's debatable. I and went to a workshop at Creative South with a lawyer who talked about copyright, and she would have said that this would have not, um, it's, this would have gotten, he would have got, these two, Alton Kelly and Stanley Mouse would have gotten sued. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And that's, that's what I understand today as well, um, that it's just way too similar. But you also have to think about the timeline and was anybody out there policing this? Well, it wasn't as prevalent. You couldn't see it. The We have the internet. We have printing that's much more affordable. So people may have been seeing this, but they might not have seen that other, you know, like yeah. it, the, it was the time frame. Those people before, maybe, the, you know, people weren't studying art history or anything like that to that. Point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And Dan says they probably in the, in 66, they probably felt a bit more rebellious as well. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, so I want to talk about postmodernism. And a lot of people start postmodernism when they when they start talking about postmodernism, they start talking about, um, you know, April Griman and, and uh, Paula Scheer and things like that. But I actually think that the, the Pushpin Studios is a, is a good example of early postmodernism ideology. Um, the Pushpin Studios were working at a time when you know, they, the corporate style was very ITS. They used 
photography instead of illustration. Um, they used sans serif type. Everything was very clean and modern and used grids. And Pushpin um, really uh, abandoned all that. And they, they did what they wanted to do. And they used a lot of illustration. And they borrowed images and styles um, from the Victorian era and from Art Deco and from um, Art Nouveau. So I, I feel like they were really postmodernism before postmodernism became a big thing. Yes. So I, I see it. They used type for his face, like a colon, a seven, and a parentheses. Mm. I can see that. I'd never really paid that much attention. It's so type typographic, you know, like perfect. Anyway, maybe not. Very perfect. Anyway, keep um, so Pushpin was founded by Milton Glaser and Seymour Quast and Milton Glaser, whose birthday was yesterday, he turned 90. Um, he's one of my favorites. So I probably have a few too many images from Milton Glaser <laughs> in here. Um, the Bob Dylan poster is so iconic and it's been um, parodied so many times. So I wanted to throw in some of these parodies um, just to, so people can see how iconic that design is. Um, one of my favorite parodies was, and I'm sorry, this is grainy again, uh, is the Mo Meta Blues um, biography by Questlove. Um, and inside the inside cover, they they talk about who designed this, and then they say, it says, with apologies to Milton Glaser. <laughs> I love that. And I picked up this book just because of this cover and read it. And by the way, it was riveting. Hmm. Um, Milton Glaser also designed the iconic I Heart or I Love New York um, campaign from 1975. Did he um, this, send his work? Um, I think he, I thought he did, uh, but maybe not. Huh. Uh, the examples I have here apparently are not signed, um, but I thought he did. I can't tell you for sure. Naomi uh, said the hair reminded her of the yellow submarine um, from the Beatles. Yes. Hans Eidelman, I believe is who that is. Okay, so the Isle Heart New York campaign, um, New York was really struggling. They, it wasn't quite the tourist destination that it is today. It was really dirty and it had a lot of um, criminal activity and it wasn't necessarily a place people wanted to go. They had to go there because it was like a business center and a business hub, but you know, people did not love New York. Um, and, New York and they were trying to turn that around. They were cleaning up the city. They were cleaning up crime. And Milton Glaser contributed this design, the I Heart New York campaign, and that really helped change public opinion about New York. Um, and he didn't earn a dime from this. Like, he gave this design wow. away for free. Now he has since, of course, made it lots of dimes on all the other things he did. So this is probably, uh, you know, while you could say, oh, my gosh, he lost so much money on this, he probably gained just as much because of the notoriety of the campaign. Wow. He also revisited in 2001 after the Twin Towers were attacked um, he, and updated it to say, I love New York more than ever with a little singe on the heart. <clears throat> um, Postmodernism, again, um, Wolfgang Weigart is often considered to be like the father of the postmodernist movement, the leader of the postmodernist movement. And he was doing some really um, experimental things with typography and, and some of it you would even consider to be 
like the predecessor to like punk and grunge, like what he was doing was very experimental. It was like he was David Carson before David Carson was David Carson. <laughs> um, so if you're not familiar with Wolfgang Weingart, I highly recommend that you look at his typography. He's got some really beautiful stuff. This would have been in, I believe, the mid to late 70s. I don't have dates on all of this. I'm so sorry. Um, okay, so where are we now? Postmodernist typography. We're going to focus a little bit more on typography now. And Herbu Ballin um, was a designer who used typography almost as illustration. It became had this almost illustrative quality to it. And one of his iconic things that he's known for is he created some beautiful masthead designs um, that were really playful and smart approaches to handling typography. Um, the one you really hear about a lot is the mother and child solution. Um, it's a really smart solution. He also, he worked with a lot of other typographers as well. Um, I think that there's a misspelling in this. I could be wrong. Uh, but he, so he developed avant-garde as a magazine and he created the masthead for that. And the masthead was um, all this original typography that was, again, you know, this was fairly modernist in its style, but um, had really, really tight kerning. Um, and, you know, letters were overlapping and becoming ligature forms. Um, and eventually he expanded that into a full typeface known as avant-garde Gothic. Um, and again, this is intended to be for display and it has these extensive ligatures and I think is really iconic of the, the, 19, the typography of the 1970s. Um, another typographic hero of mine is Lou Dorfsman and his, you know, ode to the world and typography is the gastro-typographical assemblage. Um, he created this in 1966 for CBS. This was actually put inside their cafeteria, if you will, or like a food court. Um, and the, the type was all, you know, made by hand. Um, and he, he did it with, he, it was his idea, but he worked with, I believe, Tom Carnes and Herb Blue Ballon to complete the design. Um, and this was in a time when CBS was really, um, you know, they were wanting to do big things and good things. And they, um, you know, they were associated with William Golden, who designed the CBS I logo. Um, so they were really known for pushing the boundaries. And I think the gastrotypographical assemblage or um, the food wall was synonymous with that. And I love showing it. I love introducing students to it. This has since been taken down and then it was put in storage for a, a long time um, and, and not really well cared for. It has since been recovered from storage. I believe they were going to throw it out um, and somebody recovered it and they um, redid it. And I believe it's now at the Culinary Institute. Um, I could be wrong about that. Um, so another individual that I think a lot of people don't get to hear about is Robert Masson. He was a French designer and his designs for the bald soprano from 1964. This was a play, a production, um, which he was hired to design the book for is absolutely extraordinary. Um, again, this was, I consider this to be very postmodern typography, really pushing the boundaries. Um, it has this feeling of being grunge. Um, he used codaliths and he used 
um, he actually put a printed type on um, condoms and then used that to stretch and warp the type and then photographed it to be used in his um, typographic layouts. And, and so I think this entire thing is online. Go and look at it. It has some really, really interesting solutions. And of course, it's, it's all in French. So unless you speak French, you probably aren't going to be able to understand it. But, uh, but it is quite beautiful despite that. Um, Ed Fella, Ed Fella was, um, he was really inspired by vernacular typography. So he would pay attention to like hand lettered signs, things that were not done by professionals. And he would borrow and, and, um, you know, create original designs too, that were just, you know, inspired by this vernacular um, typography. So things that you would not necessarily consider maybe really fine or refined, um, but he became really well known for this um, and is still revered today for his typographic solutions. He also um, compiled a book called Letters Across America where he went across America, traveled across America, and uh, photographed vernacular typography. Uh, it's quite interesting. Great resource. So we're going to jump next into deconstructivism. And um, in my class, I have the luxury of time. So I really break up deconstructivism into both punk and grunge. And we talk about the differences there. Um, but it's going to be a little bit hard to do that here today. So um, the big names I think that you need to know in terms of deconstructivism is um, David Carson, for sure, often referred to as um, the father of grunge. Um, and he was associated with magazine design. Um, he was not formally trained as a designer, but um, really created waves. And a lot of people say that because he didn't know the rules, he was free to break them. Um, and he, he kind of asserts that that's kind of crap, that, you know, he, he knew what he was doing. He was not some idiot out there creating these layouts. He had a very strong sense of aesthetics. He's a sociologist. He, he is a surfer. And so he did ray gun, which I have a ray gun here somewhere. Cause I would buy these in, in, um, undergrad. I thought they were oh, smart. read the material, but I did, um, buy some. Um, I have one in here somewhere, but the, he did, you know, he was really, so as a sociologist, you get what he was doing. So he was doing kind of what maybe, um, uh, some of the other people that we talked about maybe yesterday who were doing, it's more maybe a political kind of thing, but his is really pushing the boundaries. He did a whole article in Zafting back. So you couldn't read it unless you deciphered that do you remember that mm -hmm. and uh, anyway, but I think that it really was about it was about uh, um he was making a statement to what the what life was like or what people were like and you know he was really pushing things I think oh yeah absolutely so here's just another example of David Carson's iconic typography um Many people try to imitate it, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's its own beast. Um, I also want to bring up Art Chantry. He's one of my favorites. In fact, um, I have a book of Art Chantries that at the end of this lecture, I want to recommend to you guys. Um, so try to remind me to do okay. that. Uh, but Art Chantry, he designed um, the Night Gallery. And this was actually taken from an advertisement he had found for tools. 
and he took this advertisement and he completely deconstructed it and then reconstructed it with his own text. So again, this is sort of that idea of where's plagiarism? Where's the boundaries? Where's copyright? And I, he tended to use these really, um, you know, borrow from image, you know, imagery that would be considered very lowbrow or very industrial. Um, and so there probably just wasn't like if the designer of this advertisement saw this, they probably were, you know, just didn't care that he was borrowing their entire design. He's still alive, right? Yes. Um, I also put Steve, uh, Stefan, Stefan Sagmeister, Sagmeister into the category of deconstructivism um, because I feel like his typography in particular tends to be, or at least um, in the era that we're talking about him here, tends to be very grunge-like, um, hand-rendered type. It's very messy. Um, and he's got some really, he has some really interesting stories behind his um, pieces. Uh, this is the AIGA biennial conference that was in New Orleans in 1997. Um, there were like jokes worked into this. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's a, it's an interesting take and certainly it gets attention. Um, other deconstructivist typography, um, in particular, there is some typefaces that I, I just so strongly associate with deconstructivism. And one of them is, um, this is actually Michaela. I, I misspelled that, I guess maybe some sort of thing corrected me on it, but it's Scott Michaela, um, Dead History from 1990. And this typeface was purchased by the MoMA and is now in their, their permanent collection. So they have, they now have a collection of typography, which I think is really interesting to go in there and see what typefaces they're they are putting in their collection. But Dead History is one of them. Um, another example is Barry Deck's Template Gothic. And Template Gothic kind of became the iconic typeface of the 1990s. Yep. I mean, everything was set in Template Gothic, like everything from your concert posters and advertisements to annual reports and brochures, you know, things you wouldn't necessarily think belong in Template Gothic were actually set in Template Gothic. Um, another iconic design, and again, all three of these have been purchased by the MoMA for their permanent collection. Uh, Neville Brody's Blur from 1992 is also iconic of that era. Um, I probably should have done the digital revolution before I did deconstructivism, but thank you guys for, for going with me on this wild ride. Um, so <laughs> next we're going to talk about the digital revolution. A Macintosh computer was introduced in 1984. Go out and find the, um, the commercial that Whedon and Kennedy did for this. It's fantastic. Um, and uh, I, I'm not going to show it because we just don't have time, but definitely take a, take a minute to look at that. Um, the Macintosh computer really revolutionized how people use computers. It had a much more... Um, user-friendly interface, if you will. And uh, the, it, it really embraced desktop publishing early on. A lot of the, the software that designers were using, um, or that designers could use, I should say, um, was developed for the Macintosh primarily. So the Macintosh really became sort of synonymous during this period with graphic design and desk, desktop publishing. Um, and since then, you know, for, for a while, you actually could not get that software on a, on a PC. Um, that's no longer true, but it has become so ingrained with 
um, graphic design culture that most people still design on Macintosh computers. And that's not always true, um, but there's certainly, uh, it's still a very Mac friendly feel. Um, I get students occasionally who come in with a PC and I'm like, that's fine, but I can't help you if you have a problem. Um, <laughs> it's like your, your computer speaks Spanish and I don't speak Spanish. Um, and I think that a lot of faculty members uh, feel that way as well. But I, I always encourage them to get whatever you like. That's, it's fine. Well, I, we make them get a Mac because more than likely they're going to use a Mac at their job. And so, yeah. and so my dad's watching and I'll tell you the story really fast. So he did not want to get me a Macintosh. He's like, Diane, that's just in school. And so we, he worked for Georgia Power for uh, tons and tons and tons of years. And I don't know how many exactly. And he uh, said, Diane, let's go tour. And so he took me to work with him. And I was in college at this point and he took me to the art department and they all had Macs and it was just the best. Cause you know, I think he was like going to show me and then it, I was so excited that, you know, I was right. My teachers weren't lying to me. So I just think, you know, it's like riding a bike with training wheels some point you're going to have to take the training wheels off. And, and that's kind of how I feel like, well, if you're on a PC, I get it. But you know, if you're going to be using this Mac, it would be great if you use a Mac. Yeah. Cool. Cause you do have to fix your computer a lot, you know, when you're yes. doing yes. it on your own and sometimes PCs crash. Sometimes and it's simple things like connecting to Wi-Fi, and on a PC, I have no idea how they do it. My Mac just magically connects. So how do you do it on a PC? I don't know. Yeah. Okay, keep going. Okay. Um, and a lot of designers jumped on the digital technology bandwagon right away. And April Griman is a great example of this. Um, and, and she embraced it so much that a lot of the maybe things you could see as limitations of the new, des the new digital revolution and desktop publishing um, were embraced into her uh, design. So you see a lot of like this lo-fi, low-tech um, typography and pixelated imagery worked in, but it really works. And I'm actually seeing this currently with, especially with our students right now, this, um, they're embracing that lo-fi, low-tech look once again. Uh, so it's interesting to see how these things come back around. Um, another example of, of designers who embraced the desktop publishing and um, digital revolution were Rudy Vanderlands and Zulazana Litko, who <clears throat> created the Emigre magazine. And Emigre was a very iconic design magazine. It ran from 1983 to 2005. This is actually an image from the book that they wrote about it. I think it's called Emigre Number 70, and it has several spreads, including uh, from from the previous or from the Emigre magazines. Um, this was really revolutionary. Great example of postmodernism um, design. They tended to, uh, you know, with magazine design, you tend to see a very structured format. They have a style guide. This is how you design every magazine spread. These are the rules. And Immigre really threw out the rules. And there were, you know, head, headings were different sizes and in different typefaces. And um, the, the columns changed from spread to spread and, and indeed magazine to magazine. So um, they were really experimental in their approach, and it has become just an iconic design um, associated with uh, graphic design history. 
So you also, with the digital revolution, you get things like, um, you know, this new area of design, UX and UI design, user experience and user interface design. And I like to throw in Susan, Care, uh, Susan Care's icons as a great example of early um, UI design. Um, one of the things that I, I've heard is that, in particular, when you look at the icons, the icon, the second icon over from the right, the watch. Um, when things, you know, when you were waiting for something to load, um, instead of having a clock, she chose specifically to have a watch because it, you, you know, you wear it on your person, and um, it has a little bit more of this idea of the human and interaction so she put a lot of thought really into these designs and they seem maybe very simple when you first look at them but when you really pay attention they're really quite nice so of course then we also have to talk a little bit about web design and i really love showing examples of netscape web browsers days <laughs> um, because they weren't great and uh, again the sort of lo-fi low-tech this is what you could do with um, website design at the time. And, and designers were very inhibited by this type of design. And there were still a lot of, you know, rules and regulations about how to use typography on the web and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I think history is a, gr a great avenue to show where, how it's advanced and where those limitations still are. Amy says, <laughs> Amy says, oh, my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful, isn't it? Do you guys remember like those rotating gifts? My dad on his website had um, an American flag that waved a little gift. It was terrible. I tried to get him to remove it all the time. That's pretty impressive. Your dad had a website. Oh, he did. Yeah. yeah. What did your dad do? Uh, he had a, a petroleum company. Uh, well, petroleum marketers company. They repaired oil. Uh, gas tanks, I'm sorry, gas pumps, gas tanks, that sort of thing. Oh, gotcha. I thought like like Vaseline petroleum. Oh, no, no. <laughs> okay, keep going. So next I really want to jump categories again um, to, so I think I've mentioned that I'm really interested in exploring, um, you know, design maybe outside of the canon. And so I really have tried to make an effort to include women and minorities mm -hmm. to design, especially because of the changing face of the students. I want them to be able to see um, that women are successful. They have been successful. So I incorporate uh, designers like, I, I believe you say her name, CP, CP Pineless, um, from, uh, she, she worked for several magazines. Seventeen Magazine was one of the, one of the iconic magazines she worked for. Um, but she was the first woman admitted to, I think it was the Type Directors Club. Mm -hmm. um, and she was admitted pretty early. And I think part of that had to do with her husband. I think it was William Golden at the time. Um, it might have been Will Burton. Anyway, uh, but he refused, they, they offered him admission and he refused to take it until they accepted her um, into the, the club. Um, so that was really, you know, a big step for women. She, and she didn't really consider herself a feminist, um, which is, I think, funny because she was really groundbreaking, you know, to have a woman art director, a woman in charge. Um, and yet she didn't really consider herself to be that big of a, you know, a step in design history, if you will. 
Um, let's see, George Olden was an African-American designer who worked for, he worked for CBS for a really long time and he designed um, a lot of things for CBS, including <coughs> a lot of the um, static images that you would see between television takes and that sort of thing. But he also was um, commissioned to design the Emancipation Proclamation stamp from 1963. So it was a stamp that was honoring the Emancipation Proclamation 100 years. Yes. Ann said he went to Virginia State University, and that's where oh. Ann teaches. Awesome. That's, that's good to hear. I, I can't remember where he went to school. I'm not even sure I knew. But yeah, and I believe his name was actually originally spelled with an E, and he dropped the E. I'm not sure about that. Let's see. Next, I want to talk about another woman designer, Sister Mary Carita Kent. Was she a nun? Yes, she was a nun. Um, I believe she was out in California, and she, it seems, sounds like from my research, it sounds like she was very much a hippie nun. Um, she did a lot of poster design. She, she studied art and art history, I believe, um, and then she ended up teaching it as well. And she did a lot of, um, I think, uh, silk screen prints, um, serigraphy maybe. Um, anyway, so she um, created designs that, um, often promoted peace and ending the war and that sort of thing. And But she was really experimental in her designs. And if you haven't looked into the sister, Mary Carita Kent, I think she went by Carita Kent. Um, I highly recommend that you do so because she had some fantastic, fantastic stuff. Mm. Um, I also love Fukuda's designs. He is, uh, he was a, I think he, he may still be alive, um, a Japanese designer who um, was found, if you will, by Paul Rand. Paul Rand discovered him, so, so to speak. Um, I think that might be putting it a little too lightly. I think Fukuda was probably doing just fine before Paul Rand discovered him. But he um, brought his work to America, had him do a, I think it was a solo show in concert with IBM. Um, and that's how he became recognized by American designers. And he did some really interesting, um, really smart designs. They're, they, they definitely embraced modernism, but they also pushed the envelope there. They tend to use um, a lot of illustration and there tends to be a lot of um, sort of visual play there, play with positive and negative designs and, um, and very conceptual work. So look at Fukuda's stuff. Oh, let's see. Um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about some of the current leaders of design. And I mentioned yesterday when we were talking about um, writing and what is the point for students to practice their writing skills. Um, well, a lot of the current leaders and, and even some of these past leaders like uh, Paul Rand, I mentioned, they are avid writers. They are taking part of the dialogue. They are creating the dialogue and the criticism surrounding design. Mac Michael Beirut is one of them. He has a really great podcast with Jessica Helfand. Um, I think it's called The Observatory. Um, and, and they talk about all things culture. You know, it's more about culture than just about design. But it's all things that affects design, like having an understanding of the, the topics that they, they bring up can make you a better designer if for no other reason than because you're more aware of what's going on in the world and how it relates to design. So here's a beautiful example from Michael Beirut. Um, Paula Shear, this is an older piece of hers. She was um, very known for her um, 
large campaign she did for the public theater. Um, and what's interesting about Paula Shear is, um, so they both work for Pentagram and they're both partners. Um, so they have different, they don't work together. They have different teams. Um, so her and Michael Beirut, by the way. Um, but so Paula Shear was, uh, she didn't consider herself very good at typography when she was in school, um, but she loved typography. So she really challenged herself and took on a lot of projects with typography. And now it's one of the things she's known for, you know, um, and she does these beautiful painted maps today that, that are all, you know, typography based maps. Um, so I think it's really interesting when people take something that they struggle with and make it a strength and really, instead of going, I'm not good at that. So I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Uh, she's a really painter, right? That was yeah. what she studied in school was painting. Um, I, well, I don't know, but I, I don't, I just don't know. I just know that she did not consider herself to be good at typography. Uh, so there was a, it, there's this thing called the artist or something. It's like a, on Netflix or something like that. Oh, um, was it abstract? Abstract. Yeah. Started yeah. with a whatever. Um, but that way they had it about her and they, I think they said that. Thank you, Amy. She Amy. was also married to, oh, is married to Seymour Quast. So uh, married to another one of the iconic designers that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> of course she does. Of course she does. Um, I wanted to throw Fred Woodward in there. I think his stuff is really fun and playful. He worked for Rolling Stone for a very long time. And like this particular piece was a throwback to sort of the pulp um, novels um, from, the, from an earlier, which would have been, you know, illustrated by hand. So here he's taken sort of a photographic approach to what a pulp um, novel would look like and I so I just really love um, this design by Fred Woodward. Oh, this is pixelated. I have to throw in Chip Kidd um, Just such a, a character. He's got a couple of TED talks. Take a look at those if you get a chance um, And this is another designer who's really really known for his book cover designs And so in this example, he actually designs the cover for his own novel um, the cheese monkeys and, and if you haven't read The Cheese Monkeys and you are a graphic designer, take a moment to read it. It's pretty, it's about a kid going to school, and I want to say like the 50s, maybe, um, for design. He takes some art classes. He takes some design classes. Um, and it's really, really interesting. I feel like um, he had an art teacher that reminds me of an art teacher I had in school. He had a design teacher that reminds me of a design teacher I had in school, though my design teacher was not quite that uh, harsh, maybe. I, I don't know if that's the word, but but I think a lot of people can resonate with this book. Um, and it was it, it was a rebus, so much like the IBM rebus poster, you read the pictures as words. The cheese monkeys. They actually made a slip cover for this because I think they decided at the last minute that it wasn't going to work. Um, which so it just had the text, the cheese monkeys on it. But if you removed that slip cover. Um, the the actual real cover design was quite lovely. Hmm. I mean, and the, the, oh, was that it? Yeah. Oh, we made it through. Oh my goodness. Woohoo. <laughs> that was incredible. Okay. So, so that was actually better than I thought. I was really throwing some stuff in there at the last night. Like, oh my God, we have to talk about Michael Beirut. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Um, and Dan said exactly what I wanted to say. I can't believe you touched on so many things. So 
I'm this felt like a sprint. I hope everybody was with me. <laughs> I'm sure it did feel like a sprint because this is normally 16 weeks and it's three times a week or two times a week, right? Yes, yes. Um, yeah. So actually, I'm sorry. I was reading some of the, the text over there. Um, no, we, we actually teach my history of graphic design once a week. It's a three-hour class once a week. I'm always exhausted by the time we're done. I bet. Because yeah. you're still trying, it's, it's hard, I can imagine, just to put everything into the day that you're in because you can really fill it, fill it up, I think. Yeah. So again, thank you. Somebody reminded me that I wanted to share the Art Chantry book. Um, let's see. Art Chantry Speaks, A Heretic's History of 20th Century Graphic Design. I read that backwards. How good am I? I know. So good. It's not backwards to us, though. <laughs> we can so, read it. So um, Art Chantry wrote this book, and it has a lot of essays on um, the history of graphic design. And I really like it because, you know, the Meg's book and, you know, Eccleston's history of graphic design and all the other graphic designs out there. They're fantastic, great resources. But I like this one because it complements that. And it looks at things that most people wouldn't look at. It looks like, you know, Alton Kelly and uh, Stanley Mouse. And it looks at um, psychedelic design, but in a different light. And, um, and he looks at things that we should, that he thinks that we should look at in history of graphic design, but that aren't included. So this is almost like your, maybe one of your first textbooks of the history of graphic design beyond the canon. So I think it's a really great compliment to Meg's history of graphic design and whatever else you're reading on history of graphic design. So I wanted to include that. That's awesome. Okay. So I just want to share with you guys the poll results. The poll is ending right now. Okay, here's the results. Have you taken any design history courses? Um, Mandy, this should be very interesting for you about maybe making a course you could sell online. 70% um, of people said no. 70%. So things like this, I think, are really important, but maybe it's a how you incorporate them into design uh, currently. I think that there's definitely some things you could do with that. Um, and then would you be interested in a course devoted to design history? 25% said yes, 15 said no, and 60% yes, but it depends on other factors, which could be money, time, you know, things like that. I think if it was an online course that was not for credit, that probably wasn't as much as a, a regular college course, maybe that that's one of those things. I didn't write all the things it could be. Did you guys like having a poll? Was this a good thing? Um, anyway. Um, oh, Naomi said, yep. Um, all right. So then which design recharges did you <laughs> attend? 90% of the people today said they attended today, which I think is hilarious. It's just my mom because she doesn't know how to probably do the poll. Um, it should have been a hundred percent. Eighty-five percent of y'all attended yesterday, and fifty percent attended Tuesday. I don't know if you guys can see the results. That's why I'm reading them. And obviously, the people in YouTube land can't. Did you like watching Design Recharge in multiple days? A hundred percent of people said yes. To be honest, this was really hard for me, <laughs> and I think it was a lot for uh, Mandy for sure. It's, I'm super thankful that you can do a Cliff Notes version. This would be great. You could go to, around schools and talk, you know, AIGA chapters and give, you know, like a workshop, the cliff notes. I mean, that could be an interesting thing. Anyway, obviously, I'm just trying to make her money. Um, <laughs> um, 
Oh, yeah. Mandy should consider a podcast like 99% Invisible Graphic Design History. Why don't, while I'm reading these, you tell them about the podcast that you are going to be doing. Okay, so I, I'm going to be starting a podcast. We're running some test episodes this summer. Um, the podcast is actually, I, I'm, I've been really interested in, in exploring design history beyond the canon, beyond like the staples, the framework that's been created by Philip Meggs and others, like who has been left out, who should we be looking at and exploring um, that are not typically in the textbooks, or maybe that are in the textbooks, but aren't, that, but aren't figured prominently in the textbooks. So the title of the podcast that I'm starting is called Incomplete Design History. And um, I think the first season is going to focus entirely on women designers. Uh, that's the plan for right now anyway. We'll see how that goes. Um, I hope to have some sample episodes by the end of the summer, as I said, and then hopefully go live either later this fall or early next spring. Um, and it'll be season-based because it requires a lot of uh, background work and research. It's not going to be like week to week like Diane's right is right now. Um, it's a different format. I I'm not going to be able to produce a episode each week like Diane does. Um, so if you're, if you're interested in that, you want to know more about that, feel free to email me at ahorton4 at uco.edu. The, the website isn't live yet. Uh, we've been working on it, but it isn't live yet. Um, and uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Unicorn Loves Trouble. Um, when I do go live, I will certainly notify my Instagram um, followers and my connections there as well. And I'm going to put this in the chat and this will be underneath if you're watching on YouTube or whatever. I just think it's funny because my mom told me in the beginning, she's like, do you really have to do it every week? And it is a lot, but um, it's totally changed the way I do design. It's helped me a ton in just my practice. It's helped me just to meet a bunch of people I think are, is really helpful. So I'm still doing it once a week, but once <laughs> three times a week was a little much for me, but I'm glad you guys liked it. I think Carrie had a good suggestion. Maybe once a quarter, maybe once a quarter is a little too much for me. Maybe one, like the three times a year, maybe I could do, um, or twice a year, I think could be, uh, maybe like when we're off at a break for maybe Christmas or anyway. So you plan on publishing, recording some podcasts and then getting them out when I'm sorry, I was trying to, I'm hoping to have some sample episodes live, maybe by the end of the summer. Um, we're going to be using sample episodes to, you know, figure out the logistics of how this all works. So they, they may be recorded and then re-recorded later. Um, so it, it, they may, the first couple of episodes may be a little rough, but I want to get them out there for people so that they can, um, get on board with this, maybe subscribe to the podcast when it does go live. Uh, that's the plan anyway. Well, that's good. Last summer I did something and it was really helpful. I took the month of July off. I also was retiling my floor and so I couldn't do that and everything else. Um, and at this time we just have a little bit of tiling left to do. So the second week I will also be taking off, but then I'm going to do a two part series that really leads up to some things that I've been learning. And then I'm um, announcing now, I guess, that I'm doing a coaching a group. I've been doing the beta. It's called the Power Station, so the Design Recharge Power Station, and that is going to be launching August 1st. So it's a Thursday. We meet on Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. It's an application. You just have to get answer three questions. It's just to make sure that you're really interested in and committed because it's not a, it's not free, so it's a commitment financially as well. So anyway, 
Um, but I'll be telling you more about that in the upcoming weeks through email. You won't be getting two emails a week from me. One thing Mandy and I had questions about was the um, using these images. And so if somebody makes me take these down, then I will, obviously, because there could be copyright infringement. But it is free, so I'm not, so this is for educational reasons. We think it's probably still okay, but I just want to kind of give you guys that heads up that me and Mandy did talk about that. Usually when I have somebody on, it's their work that they're talking about. They may have um, showed someone else's, but of course we're giving credit. But with these things, somebody owns the rights to these photos and they have allowed them to go in books, just like with Meg's. So he collected a whole bunch of things and Libby, um, Phil was one of my teachers. Uh, Libby is his wife. She was super excited that we were talking about the Meg's book. And um, she said he would be happy that I was doing this and proud of me, which I really appreciate. He's just such a great, such a great guy. And he was just super humble. I thought he was a, being a jerk at first because he was like, you've heard of me? And I'm like, who hasn't? You wrote all three of my textbooks in undergrad. And I really was like, oh my goodness, is he a jerk? But then he really was. He just had this amazing, youthful um, way about him. And he was being completely honest and sincere. And so I just loved having him as a teacher. And he just passed away way too early my last year. Uh, in Richmond, he he died. And so it was just, um, but man, he was just so, so funny. If you guys want um, anything else from me, you can always reach me at diane at rechargingyou.com. I hope by the end of July, there will also be a new website. We're just ho hoping and praying that I can get stuff done that I said I was going to do. So um, you can pray for me if you, <laughs> if that, if you are, committed to that, uh, that I would appreciate it. Um, and there's a new thing that I'm doing with another friend. Um, her name is Rachel Nichols and we're doing mentor to mentor. So this is a new little series that design recharge will be putting out and the first one will come out next Wednesday. So just so you guys know, there will be something coming out on YouTube and I'll share it. Um, but I, I don't, do you guys want an email on that? I don't know. Like sometimes I feel like I worry that y'all are like, oh my gosh, we get two emails a week. Like, stop emailing me. Anyway, and they're not answering. <laughs> well, Mandy, thank you so much for being on here. So you'll see what I've been learning or what I've been doing and what I do kind of more with the client stuff or interacting in another way. So hopefully that'll be good. Mandy, I had two questions for you today. Okay. Or three yes. questions. Yay. How do you recharge? And what oh. inspires you? Um, oh, you know, I think everything can be inspiring. Um, I'll come back to that question. How do I recharge? One of the big things I like to do in my free time, what free time I have, which is not a lot, is to practice hand lettering. I do hand lettering, you know, by hand analog on paper and with pens. And I collect pens and I've got a huge problem with collecting pens. And then I also, <laughs> and then I also, um, also got an iPad. So I've been practicing hand lettering techniques on the iPad and I find it so soothing. So very often when I do have free time in the evenings, I'll be sitting with a pad and paper and practicing my hand lettering. And I, I, I try to post some of that on Instagram, um, from time to time. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, there's all those programs like, you know, 
30 day lettering challenges. And I'm like, yes, I'm going to do that. And then I'm like, I don't have time to do my lettering challenge today. Um, so I, but I, I find it so soothing and I, that, so that's how I recharge and inspiration. I'm inspired by all the podcasts I listen to, um, yours and 99% invisible and historium and, um, stuff you missed in history class. And even, you know, I listen to what's the murder one. Um, oh. oh, they, they always say stay sexy and don't get murdered. Um, my favorite murder. Um, I, I even get inspired by that. And, um, I, I, I read all the books I can. I'm such a, a huge book nerd, a bibliophile. Um, I read everything. I, I read, uh, fiction and nonfiction and I read, um, history books and design books and, um, you know, I'm reading feminist books right now. So there's, there's all that. Um, what else inspires me? Walking in my neighborhood inspires me. Walking in New York inspires me. Travel inspires me. I think you really can find inspiration everywhere. You just have to be willing to receive it and accept it. Yeah, for sure. All right. So the next question is, is what advice would you give your younger self? Um, I wish I had gotten an art history uh, <laughs> major, uh, like I'm, I'm like a double major, so major in okay. graphic design <laughs> and art history. Um, but at the time, I had, I'm sure, I'm, uh, like a lot of people, I jumped around from major to major. So when I finally got into graphic design, I was like a year and a half or two years into my degree, and um, so I kind of had to hustle to get out of school. In four, you know, five years actually, I did the five-year plan. Um, I wish I had double majored. Um, I wish I had spent more time reading in college. Um, I wish I'd read all of the required textbooks in college. I have to admit I didn't. You know, it was one of those things where if the teacher didn't check in, I didn't, you know, I was like, I've got other things I need to do. But um, I've, I have since read, I think, every book that was required from college and more. Uh, but read books start a book collection now. And even if you don't have time to read it now, save it because you'll find time at some point to read it. Um, but also make sure you enjoy what you do. That's very important. So you kind of touched on some of this, uh, the what is next. So have you ever thought of, you You encourage your students to write, mm -hmm. you make them, not encourage them, you make them. Um, but what about, <laughs> what about writing for, for, um, for you? You know, I, I, I've been trying to explore some um, more popular topics, thinking about getting um, published in like print magazine, uh, well, which is online now and, and Design Observer online and that sort of thing. I am pursuing, I've, I'm pursuing, um, well, I, so I've been accepted to present at the Design History Annual Conference in, wow. in the UK, which is in September, and I'm very excited about that. So I've, I've been doing a lot of research on that. And then, of course, I hope to turn that, that presentation into a publication with them. Um, Where is that? Where in the UK? It's in a town that I'd never heard of, Newcastle upon Tyne. Oh, so is it? south or north north it's actually closer to scotland so i'm thinking about flying into um uh edinburgh i'm sorry edinburgh and taking the train down because it's like a two hour train drive or train ride and it, otherwise it's like a three hour train ride i think from london or something like that 
So, so we got a lot of connections in the UK. And so Dave said it's North England and um, Dame, Jason said Damien Kidd, who's a great illustrator. He does a lot of logos and illustration. Really, really nice. He comes to Creative South. He, okay. um, he lives there, maybe in Newcastle, I believe. Anyway, okay. so you'll have to, we'll have to promote it and maybe those people can go. Yeah, there, so there's that. I've, I've got a, another research I'm working on that's aside from um, the podcast. And then, of course, I'm also working on the podcast. So exploring a lot of opportunities right now. And I'm very excited about all of them. So in the school year, how much time do you, do you spend on research? So I have... Um, I've really worked in the last few years. I, there's a book called How to Write a Lot, and I wish I had it handy so I could hand it up to you guys, that I read that somebody recommended to me. Um, and it really has a lot of, you know, things that you should know. It's like common sense. Like, if you make time for teaching, you should make time for your research. And I really had never done that, and, and you know, until, until I read that book about two or three years ago. And now I make sure I schedule my time for my research, and I make sure it's scheduled at a time that I can commit to it. And like class, you don't, you don't skip your research and writing time. You, it's, it's a part of your requirement as a professor. So I stick to that. I stick to a lot of the rules that he lays down. So I've been able to find more time in recent years for my research and writing. And I've, because of that, because I've set those rules, I actually enjoy it a lot more. It used to feel so like, oh my God, when am I going to find the time to do this mm -hmm. research that I need to do? But now that I have a set time, um, each week to sit down and do my research and writing. I feel so much better about it. Well, that's cool. I think Ann, uh, Ann put the how to write a lot in the panelists. So I'm going to put it in. Thank you, Ann. Repeat it down there. I want to thank you guys for coming. Um, thank you for all the people who are still working on the 30 day challenge and for all the patrons. I really, really appreciate it. But you know, Audible, use Audible. That's how I read books. And, um, I like the Divi for my theme and I use Elementor. So you know that that's what it is. And these are affiliate links if you, of course I didn't share them, but if you need me, um, reach out. I'm at, at Design Recharge everywhere else. And today, which is so funny, uh, my mom's still here. So my me mom is still here too. Anyway, my today was my grandfather's birthday. He's not with us, but today was his birthday. And my dad's birthday is on uh, Saturday. So it's kind of a crazy little two days so I always think about him anyway so me mama I love you it's just so she finally got internet people like I'm so excited